Hi, I'm Steph Knox. I'm from the 10am service. Join me today as we pray together. Father God, we are so thankful for the love that you show us on a daily basis. Help us to live and walk on your chosen path. Direct us when we do the wrong thing and give us your forgiveness. You are one true saviour. Lord, we pray for our country today and our world as it is crippled by COVID-19. Be with all those that have been affected. We ask for your healing for them. We pray for the frontline workers. Give them your protection and rest when needed. In Victoria particularly, we ask that the number of cases start to rapidly decline, that that people will follow the advice given to ensure that Australia are able to contain this virus. Lord, for our country and our leaders, we ask that they seek your counsel to govern this land with your fairness and justice, and that Australia will be a leading example of your love and compassion for all the people around the world. Father, today we pray for us in Matt's community and those who are struggling with mental health during this uncertain time. You say, Lord, not to be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Help those with anxiety and depression seek your peace. Surround them with a supportive network and give them refuge and strength in times when it is all very overwhelming. God, please be with anyone we know in distress from sickness, grief and loss. Give them your peace and comfort. We take this time now to bring them before you silently. Lord, you know who they are. Help them to know you are there to comfort and heal. God, still our hearts before you. Turn them to you. Fill us with your love. We know you hear our prayers and we are so thankful that it is all in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hi, I'm Deborah Gilbert and I go to the 5pm service. I'm going to be reading the Bible for us today. It's from Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. So I'll just give you a few moments to find your Bibles and look it up. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was ill and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you ill or in prison and go and visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was ill and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or ill or in prison and not help you? He will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Hey, thanks for having me back for this uh, doubter's guide. Uh, I'm pretty sure some people are already looking at my title and thinking, have I come to the wrong place? I think I might get offline straight away. I mean, there's all sorts of pictures of Jesus that we can handle. There's, you know, Jesus the teacher. That's pretty cool. Jesus the healer even uh, makes sense to some people. Uh, Jesus as Christ, you know, that sort of makes sense. But Jesus as judge, you know, that's just a little bit implausible, um, inappropriate, uh, maybe unfair. And yet it's there in our text. The passage just read to us, Jesus describes himself as the judge of all the nations and he separates the sheep from the goats. He divides humanity in the day of judgment. And this is why Michelangelo's famous painting, uh, The Last Judgment, has Jesus right in the center of the whole thing because the Gospels make clear he is the judge. Now, I need to admit that Christians have made a lot of mistakes on this topic of the judgment of God and put a lot of people off the whole Christian faith. I totally get that. In fact, um, early on in my ministry, I got a phone call when I was uh, working as a, an assistant minister on the North Shore uh, asking me to come and visit this woman, Judy. She had a pretty bad di uh, cancer diagnosis and one of her neighbours asked if I'd come along and um, have a chat to her about the Christian faith. Anyway, I turned up and it turns out uh, Judy hadn't been inside a church for like 40 or 50 years. And I said, what happened? And she said, well, I was in a local church here on the north of Sydney um, where the preacher preached judgment with a smile on his face. And I sat there thinking, I don't want this. And I walked out and I've never been back. It was very confronting. She just didn't know that there was a version of Christianity that made sense. And that's kind of what I want to do uh, in our time together. I, I want to make sense of this topic of judgment in a way that, you know, I hope really does uh, bring some rationality to the topic. How we feel about the topic of judgment, I think depends on where we feel we sit on the the line of the justice equation, which side of the justice equation we find ourselves. Um, think of it like this. Think of the life of Tanja. She's a young girl who was trafficked as a Roma kid out of the Czech Republic, taken to Germany, where she is uh, brutalized, 
forced to service a dozen men a day, and then pose for images that are shown all around the world on the internet. How do you think she feels as she slumps into her bed at night, uh, mouthing the prayers her grandma taught her? How do you think she feels about the idea of justice coming and putting everything right? I bet she's thinking, how soon? Bring it on. And yet on the other side of the equation, you think of the madam of the brothel who controls Tanja's life. She probably thinks, oh, she has a better life with me than back in her Roma community. Or the man who visits her once a week for an appointment and imagines that he's got some kind of emotional connection. Or maybe the kid here on the northern beaches in Sydney who's viewing her images thinking she looks like she enjoys it. They think of judgment very differently. They probably would hate the thought that they were in line for judgment. My point is how we feel about this topic really depends on which side of the justice equation we reckon we sit. I want to leave that thought uh, in kind of suspended animation and then explore for a little while the portrait of the Messiah as judge. And they're going to return uh, to this. Firstly, then, Messiah as judge in the Old Testament, because this is really where it begins. Um, I want to start with a passage that we reflected on last week, if, um, if you saw that when we looked at Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, because there's an Old Testament passage that describes the Messiah's role as judging. Uh, Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. That's King David's family name. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. Here we see an idea that is everywhere in the Bible, actually. Judgment is about lifting up the downtrodden. Um, God is not a strict schoolmaster looking for naughty boys and girls to punish. God is more like a passionate justice commissioner who wants to right the evils of the world. And we see it expressed here uh, in terms of um, uh, the Messiah coming and giving justice for the poor of the earth. Giving justice to Tanja, the Roma girl, trafficked, is exactly what the Day of Judgment is about. And our text emphasizes this, but it's a, a theme that moves into the New Testament. And so let me uh, just briefly look at the Messiah as judge in the New Testament. Um, all of Jesus' apostles said that Jesus was the judge. Uh, here's the apostle Paul in Romans 2. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. The apostle Peter said the same thing in Acts chapter 10. Jesus was seen by us who ate and drank with him 
after he rose from the dead, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, but everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. I, I love the balance in Peter's um, argument that Jesus is both the judge, but there's also forgiveness. But, but the thing to notice is Peter reckons it was Jesus who told him to tell everyone that Jesus was the judge. In other words, this was not an idea event, uh, you know, invented by the early church. This is a theme that goes right back to Jesus himself, that he is the judge. In fact, by my count, there are about a dozen passages in the uh, New Testament, in the Gospels, where Jesus describes himself as the judge. And we're going to look at one of them in a moment. But um, even you know, important secular scholars agree that this is the authentic Jesus, the Jesus who preached about judgment. Uh, you may have never heard of Dale Allison, uh, but he's a hugely important figure in uh, historical uh, scholarship about Jesus. And he has a whole section on Jesus as a preacher of judgment. Listen to what he says. Given that so many people nowadays dislike hell, but still like Jesus, it is not surprising that some modern reconstructions no longer depict him as a believer in eschatological or post-mortem punishment. One could here be cynical and wonder to what extent the wish has cultivated the conclusion, a conclusion that certainly goes against the impression that the Gospels leave. I think that's right, and certainly the impression left in our New Testament reading today from Matthew chapter 25 is pretty clear. Um, Jesus is that son of man who uh, comes in glory and sits on a throne. This is uh, a, a judicial throne as much as it is a kingly throne. And then he judges all the nations. So th this is the judgment for ancient Rome, uh, for uh, people in the Czech Republic and Germany, uh, people here on the northern beaches. It it's the judgment of the whole world. And then we're told that he separates the sheep from the goats. He decides the eternal fate of each one of us. Um, some, uh, the sheep, get to go into an eternal kingdom, the kind of fulfillment of creation and life. And others, the goats, are told, depart from me, and they enter into an eternal fire. And fire, of course, is a metaphor, just as sheep and goats are metaphors, but they're metaphors of something real uh, and something terrible. God, according to Jesus, will divide humanity. Some will miss out on the goal of creation and fall under God's judgment. And notice again the reason for the coming judgment. It is rejecting justice, rejecting the, the way of love, uh, refusing those in need, refusing to assist the poor. And this is exactly what we found from Isaiah chapter 11. Um, judgment isn't a theological scare tactic designed to make us all more religious. It is God's pledge to wounded humanity that he hears the cry for justice and he'll bring his justice to bear on every act of evil. 
That's what judgment is about, bringing justice for Tanja, bringing justice for the neglected poor, for the refugees we shun, for victims of church abuse, for the people we tread on to get where we're going. And the degree to which we have participated in injustice, in coldness of heart toward those in need, is the degree, according to Jesus, to which we will fall under judgment. I read a uh, remarkable essay on guilt by Wilfred Maclay, who's the professor of history at uh, the University of Oklahoma. It's titled The Strange Persistence of Guilt, and it's kind of a history of guilt in Western culture. And he says that there are two important phases in the West's thinking about guilt in modern times. He describes the way the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche attacked the idea of objective guilt. Nietzsche basically said there is no objective eternal morality, so therefore there's no objective guilt. And that was um, a real attack on the whole notion that the West had inherited uh, centuries earlier. And then uh, he describes how the father of psychoanalysis, uh, Sigmund Freud, um, argued a little after Friedrich Nietzsche that feelings of guilt, so not just the objective guilt, but the feelings of guilt that we have really is a kind of neurosis that we need to mend, that we need to heal. We can resolve it through psychoanalysis. And um, Professor Maclay argues that this is partly why our culture has come to feel really awkward about guilt, judgment, and shame because of the influence of these two people. But Maclay says guilt persists. Let me quote. Guilt has not merely lingered. It has grown, even metastasized, into an ever more powerful and pervasive element in the life of the contemporary West. Even as the rich language formerly used to define it has withered and faded from discourse and the means of containing its effects, let alone obtaining relief from it, have become ever more elusive. We hate talking about guilt. Uh, I was uh, speaking to a bunch of year 10s at Campbelltown High School uh, some years ago, and I asked them to imagine their life like it was a film and like I was about to press play. Uh, I said, imagine everything you've done, said, and thought in a film, and now I play it. And there was this young lad sitting up the back of the auditorium uh, who didn't know he was sitting right near my wife, um, who mumbled under his breath as I said, imagine, he said, I'd be stuffed. Which is not the most theological uh, account, but it's kind of instinctively right. The thought of our life laid bare for all to see, how would we feel? Um, imagine our every word, action, and thought laid bare right now for all our friends to see. The ambitious fantasy we hope, you know, no one finds out. The sexual encounter in reality or online. The lie 
we hope is never discovered. The sharp word we can't take back. The um, middle class niceness that kind of hides seething resentment. The dollars we crave to spend and never send to the poor. The good deeds we do, hoping that people notice. Imagine it all on film. And I now pressed play. which of course I won't do. But the thing is, what is that feeling that we have at the thought of it? Is it just an emotional, psychological ailment that we need to resolve through counseling? Or is it a rational instinct that we have defied some higher law that has found us out? And isn't it isn't interesting that this feeling is intensified the more we think of those who know and love us well watching our film. I mean, showing my film to people I don't know is one thing, but imagine showing my film to the people nearest and dearest to me. That would scorch. And my point is, no one loves us more and knows us better than the creator himself. And before him, our guilt and shame should scorch. If God held us accountable for every act of evil, of injustice, of coldness of heart, who of us could say that we are standing on the correct side of the justice equation? Who of us could say that we don't need the forgiveness the Apostle Peter said was possible when he said that God has appointed Jesus judge of the living and the dead and that all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. In, in fact, our scary passage from the Gospels um, holds this theme of judgment and forgiveness um, beautifully in tension because as soon as Jesus has uh, finished talking about e eternal life and eternal punishment, uh, we read, when Jesus finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Jesus won't just preach judgment. He came to give his life at the Passover festival, like the sacrifice of the Passover lamb on a cross to bear into himself the judgment I deserve for judgment day. The judge is also the savior. Now my friend Judy came to believe this and gloriously in the weeks before she passed, she trusted that she had found a way of thinking about Jesus as judge and savior that made sense, that gave her great hope. But it was difficult, difficult for her to get the image out of her mind of that preacher preaching judgment with a smile on his face. The only way she could get rid of that image was by looking to Christ, 
the judge who preached judgment with tears in his eyes. The one who went to a cross in such love, giving himself for our forgiveness. So Lord, will you please, despite our experiences, despite my inadequacies in explaining all of this, help us, every one of us, to see with clarity what it means that Christ is the judge, but also that Christ is the saviour. Amen.